Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Jamie O'Banion, the founder and CEO of Beauty Bio. We recorded some of this episode before the coronavirus outbreak was declared a pandemic. That's why I asked Jamie to join me again via Zoom for a few extra questions. You'll hear those at the end of the episode. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, how are you? So, Jamie, you straddle um, two different categories in the beauty in the beauty industry, both skincare and tools. But not a lot of other brands do that. Can you talk us through the beginnings of your business? Yeah, for sure. I think when we approach beauty at large, it's easy to get caught into a certain ingredient or a certain product. But when you really think about how the consumer processes and wants to receive beauty, she really wants a certain benefit, right? So at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter to her whether that's a tool, whether it's an ingredient, whether it's a, you know, stand on your head and do 10 jumping jacks, whatever will achieve that end benefit for her, whether it's firmer skin, smoother skin, she's into it. So, Jimmy, walk us back a little bit because, you know, arguably people in the industry and consumers would probably think of you as a microneedling business first and foremost. But you actually have skincare and skincare represents the lion's share of your sales. So when were did you feel like the customers prepared to move beyond skincare products like vitamin C um, to a tool at home? Yeah, good question. Um, It's interesting because when... We started working on microneedle technology. It was really to solve for replicating what we would see happening in a Petri dish in human form in vivo, right? So without naming the name, we were working um, on a new peptide for a skincare line that we sell next to at um, many of our uh, department stores and retail outlets. And uh, we found that in a Petri dish incredible fibroblastic stimulation and collagen output with this new peptide. However, in vivo, in human form, we weren't getting the same output. So the idea was, how do we create a little microchannel, a way for that key ingredient to get down you know, into the dermis where the activity is happening, and do it in a way that it can be done at home and regularly. So our patent covers not just the apparatus, the device, but the pairing together of a bioactive material with the apparatus because the whole initial goal was we want to get the same activity that we ha- that we see when things can hit the right spot um, at home. And so what's exciting and what we were able to really achieve here is create and replicate what happens in a Petri dish in human skin without the blockage that was happening. And the side effect, as all great science experiments, there's you know some great side effect you didn't expect, is on its own, that micro-injury response creates incredible collagen and, and a healing response in the skin that creates firmer and, and more beautiful skin. So it's the most natural form of skincare from that perspective because on its own, incredible results. But then when you pair it with a vitamin C or a vitamin A, you get 200 times better absorption and you get this incredible response. So to your point, the natural uh, step after using Glow Pro is people said, well, what should I be using on my skin, right? So even though we started in skincare topicals and we're simply trying to help them become more effective, introduce Glow Pro, we've had to educate the market in many ways to say, okay, after you've used Glow Pro, think of it like aerating your garden, and then you plant your seeds, they have been, there's been a very natural pairing 
in the industry of people saying, okay, well, what do you recommend that we use after this? So would you argue that you always had the intention of creating a tool of your own? Or did you think that that came later after realizing people were using your products after going to a dermatologist and trying these treatments for three or $400? Yeah, it really was this idea of efficiency, honestly. As someone who I don't like to spend 20 minutes doing a skincare routine, we're all really busy. My my comment was, we don't have to do this in a doctor's office. At, you know, a 0.3 millimeter needle that we can, any you can't mess it up. I mean, your razor is more dangerous. You can't, you know, bleed with GlowPro, right? So why can't we do this at home? And for me, I have a lot of faith in our consumers and in us as educated men and women to say this is something that we can do at home. So it really started with this idea of let's not book the appointment. Let's not have to go, you know, spend the money and the time. Is this something that selfishly can, I can do at home? And then you start sharing out with your cohort of, you know, friends and, and so forth. So it really stemmed out of um, empowering with a methodology and a technique that was really effective, we could do at home and pairing it with our topicals to get a profound result. So it's kind of chicken and egg together. They both uh, truly work synergistically. So talk to me about those early adopters because we often hear um, with beauty devices specifically that you you buy them, you use them once, then they're left in a drawer and you never see them again. So who are the women who are really advocating and using your product and who are they today? Yeah, great question. So I think if you look at women that really understand clinical skincare and the professional side, those are your early adopters. I mean, I remember um, clearly a girlfriend who said, Jamie, my skin after I use GlowPro feels exactly like my skin does the next morning after I get a professional microneedling treatment. And I said, yeah, because it's the same microneedles, the same methodology, you're just able to do it at home. So the point there is being able to bridge that gap for consumers and allow them to have that sense of empowerment. So First and foremost, when you look at the adoption curve, our early adopters were girls who immediately appreciated being able to do something that historically was only available in a clinical setting at home and get incredible results. And then, interestingly enough, um, especially with the influencer community, we've never paid an influencer ever. We've had you know, so grateful for the editorial and influencer community at large, just really embracing the brand. Um, but there is such an opportunity for very quick viral growth once someone's able to share a method that they feel is efficacious. So I think out of the gate, uh, GlowPro, within a year of launch in the retail space, became the number one selling facial tool which is amazing. And that was a combination of our influencer community, those early adopters saying, hey, we've already been paying a lot more and spending time doing this over here. This is a really sound method. Um, And then that spreads into the influencer community and then it becomes something that is um, uh, very normal for your even your late adopters. How would you say the education has scaled over the years? Because, you know, you've had a very interesting retail strategy. You know, you had the QVC piece of the business. You you leveraged department stores. And only recently are you going into traditional beauty retailers like Sephora in-store or Mecca. So will you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I learned watching many brands launch when I was on the R&D side of the business is 
messaging. You can have the greatest product on the planet Earth, but if that's not clearly communicated, so what? Who cares? Especially with something that may be complicated. Absolutely. So I remember being um, in Neiman Marcus, uh, and our beauty bio is obviously there now, and I helped another brand launch. And I remember talking to someone at the counter, and I knew very well what the inky deck looked like, what it was supposed to do, what the active was supposed to do. And um, I was so excited. I said, you know, tell me about this product. And, you know, the sweet girl at the counter it could not have been further from the truth, right? And I just had that moment that I said, this is industry-wide the worst game of telephone. There has to be a better way. And it was at that time that I was going on, I was asked to go on different morning shows as a beauty expert and, you know, what do you recommend and so on and so forth. And um, one of the HSN and curates so QVC and HSN emerged um, buyers saw me on air and said, we would love for you to develop Align, and would you, you know, be willing to, you know, to come on and to come on air? And it's interesting because we were working on this new retinol technology, which is R45, our number one uh, retinol product. And having seen what happened in the retail space and how totally jumbled and lost the actual message was, I thought this is an amazing forum to have clarity of message direct from the founder. So people can actually be educated properly, and it's an incredibly scalable model, right? So I can fly. I was just day before yesterday on QVC uh, for a 24-hour show um, in Philadelphia. So I can directly educate 90 million women in the same amount of time it takes me to go to an event at Nordstrom or Neiman's, right, to educate a much smaller group of women, which it's not an either or, it's omni. You know, we're doing both. But especially QVC and HSN as a model, as a founder, uh, was very attractive to me because of clarity and purity of message. And my goal, uh, having the unfair advantage of growing up in the industry, is I've got to share that. Things that just are such common sense to me, many women don't know. You know, if you're using sunscreen, it needs to be physical barrier sunscreen uh, with zinc oxide, titanium dioxide, and some of these basics um, that we're discussing about skin health. I mean, you've got to think of it like brushing your teeth, right? Do you think that HSN and QVC obviously was such an imperative brand builder to prepare you to go into traditional retail? Yes, and it was a very deliberate choice. I mean, we've been very, very thoughtful with the progression of the brand. And until last year, have been entirely self-funded. And I still own majority and, you know, control the board. Uh, very, very involved in every detail. And for me, what I loved about the QVC HSN model is, I mean, I was at the time running a $10 million business with two people. What year was this? This was in 2012. And now it's over 100. Is that right? We are doing over 100 out in retail sales, which is so exciting. But I learned every facet of the business. I was customer service. I was cutting the purchase orders. I was our CFO, CMO, CEO, everything together. And I think that's been very helpful as we've grown our team because I have I very much lead with empathy because I've done every job in the office and I hope that every person I'm hiring is doing it better than I'm doing it, right? How have you guys approached profitability? Because, you know, that's something that seems to have gotten lost in the conversation in beauty in the last few years. And it's all been about growth mm -hmm. and valuations. But then at the end of the day, 
some of these companies in and around beauty have gone bust. So what's your approach to that? Yeah, so I think, number one, you should never launch a brand with the goal of it being sold. It's incredibly important to launch a brand because you believe in it and you are in it for the long haul and make decisions that allow you to be profitable and grow. And if you approach your business, and that sounds incredibly basic, but if you approach your business that way versus top line growth, top line growth, we'll figure out the bottom later and hope that you're going to be absorbed into some larger institution later, that puts you in a completely different mindset. When we launch Beauty Bio, this is a brand that I'm hoping my daughters will love and might will be a part of one day. And that doesn't mean that we would never be open to an acquisition, but my mindset is we in a silo as our own brand will remain profitable. We've been profitable since our first year of business. And that's because I didn't have the luxury with this crazy deep pocket behind me or some, you know, capitalized by a venture group to not be, right? And it's a different way of approaching the business. Thanks for joining us again, Jamie. Obviously, we spoke uh, way before the coronavirus pandemic, um, before it changed life as we know it here. So tell me where your head's been at the last couple of days and weeks. Uh, The reality is there's no blueprint for what we're going through right now. This is certainly unprecedented times. And uh, every day brings a new twist. Uh, The announcement this morning of uh, the stimulus package, what is the impact? What does that mean for us? Uh, We're certainly taking... Um, each day at a time. And the advice that I've been passing on to fellow founder friends, and my point of view is, it's incredibly important, especially over the next 60-day period, that everyone is tightening the belt, preserving liquidity, and making smart choices so that um, as we get through this pandemic, which we will, we will see the other side of this. The Starbucks are opening in China. We have a great <laughs> pattern for for success. We will get through this, but it's critical at this time uh, that we're we're making plans that will ensure the the longevity and and future upside that is certainly possible the back half of this year. So walk me through that from an internal perspective. What does that mean for you? Because you know, obviously here in New York, we've had founder friends and and businesses. We've seen them, you know, lay off staff or furlough staff or find out different ways they can cost cut. Have you been thinking about that? Have you been doing that at all? You know, it's. It's an interesting balance because um, we are our teams, right? At the end of the day, a brand, a company is a compilation of talented individuals. So uh, when we think about preserving resource, the most important resources to me are my team members. So before we, as we look at the P&L and say, okay, you know, where are areas that we can value engineer? Uh, my my goal is always to preserve our, our critical team members. So In the CPG vein specifically, with regards to beauty, uh, most beauty brands are really seeing this, you know, hockey stick revenue uptick the back half of the year. So, from a timing perspective, I think um, as an industry, we're all grateful if there if there was a time for this to happen, which you know, God forbid, we would never wish it upon anyone. Um, I think we're all really grateful that this is the time of year. Imagine uh, Q three, Q four, brutal, brutal, exactly that exact description. Um, So the good news is it is possible to recover. It is. Uh, Q2 for beauty tends to be 
uh, focused on um, spring sets, maybe cleaning up some sell-through from Q1. Um, but a lot of the big activations, Nordstrom anniversary sale, um, uh, big uh, sale events for retailers typically are happening in the back half of the year, really driving that velocity. So I'm really encouraging my team right now to be thoughtful and strategic about how we can best utilize this time. So is it pivoting and doing virtual trainings? Um, we're doing, uh, as part of our uh, Sephora brick and mortar strategy, doing really interesting um trainings right now to make sure that when the eventing is back online, we're in a really good spot. Um, it's a, if you look at the silver lining, an incredible opportunity to be able to focus on some of those fringy things that we weren't necessarily able to get to. But when you step back, you go, those fringy things were actually the strategy that we needed versus getting in the weeds as we do on a day-to-day basis. So I like to think of it as a really excellent reset. Um, so there's a lot of progress. So we've been very, very busy every day. Um, and some of our retail partners, uh, some of them are, are having to explore all kinds of new strategies that I think will end up informing some of our longer-term decisions. For example, um, this morning I was shooting some content for Nordstrom, and they're really getting their founders involved um, as a community. And I think there are going to be some excellent learnings during this time. Um, we also sell on QVC and HSN, and right now the on-air guests are not going on. So I was um, in Tampa at HSN last week. We had tremendous sales, um, you know, triple what our plan was. People are home; they're they're watching television. That's great. Uh, retail doors are closed, right? So um, I'm incredibly grateful as a brand that we have a really solid omni-channel distribution strategy. Because digital television still uh, still going strong, but we're skyping in for shows. We're doing things that um, are innovative, and all of that innovation, I think, will ultimately help us to refine our strategy as an industry and and find that maybe there are some things we hadn't explored before. But this forces us to, and we're able to transact business in a far more efficient way. So walk us back a little bit, Jamie, because obviously the store impact is huge for beauty. Like the touch and feel is what drove DDC, D2C companies to open stores, to launch with Sephora or Ulta or Nordstrom. And now we're seeing the pivot back. Customer acquisition costs are still very high online, but you know, the store impact like 10, 1200 Ulta doors, 10, 500 Sephora stores really um, survive that? You know, will there be store closures? Will that impact your forecasts? It all comes down to length of time. It all comes down to duration. Um, again, because Q2 is one that tends to be lighter and beauty sales in general, if you were to pick a quarter of the year, um, I do think that if we're able to, as a country, lock it down, flatten the curve, all of the things that we've been speaking to, uh, we'll be able to put ourselves in an economic position of success um, if we mitigate that that duration of time. Now, if this is 90 days, if it's three months instead of you know three weeks, that's a material problem. That that is going to be a challenge to come back from. I do think as a country, um, everyone is is coming together and understanding the sense of urgency. And if you look at some of the stats that are coming through. Uh, with regards to uh, patients being hospitalized. We thought this was going to be um, a far greater number being hospitalized than actually are being hospitalized, even though cases are growing. So that's very encouraging. 
Um, all of these things roll up and then coupled with this incredible stimulus package that's, you know, essentially 9% of GDP, we're looking at, you know, just under $2 trillion. Um, I think that we are certainly pulling every lever that we can to assist um, the entire country with um, certainly a scenario that if executed properly, we, we can recover from this. How do you feel about stores in general? Because you had a very aggressive um, store expansion plan. You know, obviously your rollout in Sephora, their own rollout with standalone strip mall stores, you know, to compete further with Ulta. Like, how are you approaching that? Because obviously store associates, store training can't happen. Um, And it is it is very significant not having that touch and feel element. No doubt. There is there is no doubt that. It is a, an enormous setback for every brand that depends upon that human brick-and-mortar experience. Um, the good news is for us as a brand, because we have such a strong business on our own website, um, on television, we have other areas that we're able to lean into as a business um, where, you know, my founder friends that are exclusive only to one retailer, far more impactful. And that was a really important initiative to me. Um, in the last five years, my, my number one goal was making sure that we were never totally exposed by single channel distribution. And I've been uh, really grateful for that. And this is one of those times that um, for us, we're in a solid position because um, we're not we don't have the financial exposure via a single channel. And I think it's going to help brands really pause and think about their overall uh, distribution strategy and how do we um, put ourselves in a position that, you know, heaven forbid, we have these extreme circumstances in any channel, right? What if there was a cybersecurity breach and all of a sudden we, all of our websites shut down and e-com? I mean, there are a multitude of you know, worst case scenarios. And I, I suppose that's part of my job as CEO is always thinking through worst case scenario and planning for it. But I think it certainly is going to give everyone pause um, and we will, we will come out uh, far more refined in terms of distribution strategies as we think to um, different exposure points within our businesses. How how helpful has, you know, having investors been in this? Just because, you know, I've heard from other founders, other CEOs that, you know, investors are pushing that liquid conversation, you know, and some have been very helpful and some have, you know, not been as accommodating to understand, you know, working from home policies or the furlough versus layoff conversation. You know, it's a little bit more cutthroat. But now that you have that as part of your business, what have, have, what have you experienced? It's a great question, and I will tell you, um, I I think any business owner that's at a place that they are scaling, um, it's incredibly wise to partner with uh, someone who they feel is going to be able to lean into them and their growth strategy uh, during extreme times. And I will tell you, when we were uh, going through our formal process for our raise last year, uh, we had a lot of dialogue around. No one could have predicted Corona, but I got to tell you that was one of my top five questions. Of, hey, give me some examples of when the the going's been tough, and how have you partnered with your brands? Because uh, no one is investing for a short term play. We're all looking at um, brand growth over a long period of time, and everyone can define long based upon their their fund and partnerships. Um, but certainly, it's it's really important that you understand. Uh, who your partner is in their point of view. 
Um, if there's someone that's um, running a fund that they say, look, here's how we, here's how we handled 08, here's how we handled uh, what happened in um, these periods of time, 11, uh, even 9-11, you know, years, you know, a decade before, and can really offer some um, perspective there. I think that's incredibly important. So yes, we are we are glad that we have that financial partner um, that's really locking arms um, with us through this. Again, um, at this point, it hasn't been a, a, a huge effect on um, on our business overall, uh, but it certainly has had has had an impact on our retail brick and mortar side of the business. So, great question, and I think um, and I would encourage whether it's private equity, whether it's venture capital. Um, I do think it's important that we we come together to answer your question regarding um, furlough, laying people off so they can file for unemployment. You know, what does that piece look like? Um, I do think that uh, my comment on you know team preservation as much as you can is really important because as we see through and look to the other side of what this looks like, we certainly don't want to put ourselves in a position that we're having to rebuild a team that was built in place before the before the crisis and think of this as hey this is the next 12 or 18 months where we're going to land um, so I do think it's critical to um, make decisions that will that really have the, the, a long-term perspective in in the front of our each of our minds as business owners and then as much as we can be generous I will tell you uh, especially for our freelance and field teams, um, right now we are paying our field team and they're not working. And as long as we can do that and it makes financial sense for us to do, we will continue to do, to do that because these freelance workers don't have the same job security that someone else that's working, you know, corporate salary and they are on the front lines. I mean, we had team members until we were one of the first brands to, uh, go to work from home. Um, and, uh, our team has been incredibly productive, and I think everyone was really, you know, grateful and happy that they were able to exercise that. We have a great autonomous team, um, and I sent out a message to our field team, just saying, you know, we are we are with you, and we are going to, you know, as as far as we can, uh, continue to help support you to see the other side of this. And the outpouring, very emotional um, messages Absolutely. that you know we received back, um, uh, team preservation, and you know when you're looking at your P and L. Value engineer other other places first if you can, and and really try to preserve and protect your team. When you think about virtual and also digital, whether it's digital on Amazon, which is obviously having explosive growth, albeit delays right now, or providing digital services to your brick and mortar partners, what's most important right now? So, with regards to digital strategy at large, I think there's two different uh, scenarios that are happening. Right, number one on the retail front. Uh, we have our retail partners who are, they've got to close the gap, right? There is this financial gap right now with brick and mortar closed. How can they pivot? How can they create new content? How can they create pricing structures that aren't dilutive long-term to their brand and the brand equity of their brand partners are all things that need to be considered. Um, so I think what we're going to see is an increase in um, organic content, that we'll see all of our, you know, our Nordstrom, Sephora, Neiman Marcus partners. We've had a lot of requests for additional new content. We see longer form content being um, more easily digested. People have more time at home. They're spending more time on devices. 
Um, a lot of requests on, you know, walk me through the full nightly routine and why. Skincare is having an amazing moment right now. Most people aren't wearing makeup. They're at home. So I think it's been a bit more challenging for color. Uh, but our sales have been very, very strong on digital. People say, hey, I have never tried microneedling before, even though there's not downtime. Maybe I wasn't quite sure, and now I'm really going to give it a go, <laughs> which is great. Um, so we see people leaning into our, our booster systems, you know, our 45-day systems, these types of things. And then I think we'll really win digitally with that great content. So I think our retail partners are wise to... Um, not continue executing marketing calendars that aren't relevant and don't feel in touch, right? It's, okay, let's pivot, work from home routines. How does, what does this look like in terms of structure, in terms of things that we can proactively do during this, you know, window of time that we, we might not ever get back again and, and make that most efficient. And then on the, our digital side, our Amazon luxury beauty business, our own website, uh, we've seen tremendous growth, as we know. Amazon announced, you know, they're hiring a hundred thousand uh, new More. workers. I, Nordstrom last week, one of their partners was making masks. It gives me goosebumps. It's so awesome, you know, making masks out of one of their fashion houses. Like these are awesome times that we can come together um, as a country, pivot, and um, really engage in a new way. So, Jamie, I just have to ask, you know, just in terms of pushing one channel over the other or distribution strategies, you know, a lot of beauty brands are trying to push their Amazon strategy much, much more. And whether that is sound business for the long term, what's your take? What does that take for you? Yeah, great question. We have a very healthy Amazon business. Um, We're part of Amazon Luxury Beauty. And that's a really important differentiator, not because it sounds great and ALB, you know, sounds like it's this great special um, niche. It, it's wonderful. Content is is fantastic. But if you're not on the Amazon Luxury Beauty platform, Amazon is a marketplace. So you have multiple people flooding the market uh, with your same product. Reviews can only be carried across a single item number. So if Susie Q in Idaho decides she's going to start selling on Amazon and it's a used product, there's going to be a a major, major challenge for brands that um, aren't in Amazon luxury beauty, especially prestige, you know, skincare and color, uh, because the market, that marketplace is going to be flooded with um, different people trying to jump in on the opportunity. And the bigger problem there is, um, number one, you don't know what you're getting and who you're getting it from. Number two, um, it becomes a challenge because there's this race to the bottom in terms of price point. Uh, you know, Susie Q could not only be selling product that maybe isn't new and truly from the brand, but she can put that online for whatever price she seems fit. So um, it's definitely going to be a challenge for brands that are not in a controlled, protected environment um, with regards to Amazon specifically. Um, and that could become a, a cascade and much wider problem waterfalling across your retailers who are then trying to compete with um, Wild West pricing that's happening on Amazon as different people are jumping in and being opportunistic that aren't necessarily the brand. Thanks so much, Jamie. It was great having you. Good luck, and we'll talk very soon. Thanks, Priya. Stay healthy and safe. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Tune in next week for another episode. And if you know someone or more than one who should be listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, please have them subscribe. See you next week.